Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Kirby was kind of going crazy. I was like, no, this is going to be the future. Wow, this could be something as impactful as the internet. Sort of everyone was talking about crypto then. It was hard not to be. I just basically couldn't stop thinking about it for months and months. This is the future. This this is absolutely the future. Four men hold the keys to a $2 trillion market. Crypto. You're listening to Money Talks from The Economist, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy and the world of business. I'm Rachna Shanbhog, and in this episode, we're talking to the most powerful, but little known, people in cryptocurrencies. We'll learn what it takes to get to the top and stay there in a market that never sleeps. I, I think my last call is at 5am tonight or something like that. I'll just sort of like rest whenever seems appropriate. I tend to work the majority of the time. We'll hear about their rivalries as they jostle for position and face down new threats. It was painful at times for us to watch what competitors were doing and say, why do they have another hundred assets? These things that we said, you know, we don't think that that's legal to launch in the US. And we'll explore their visions of how crypto will change the world. Will their dreams become reality? It's no longer about money. It's about doing something that's meaningful. I mean, I can retire and drink martinis on the beach and go play golf all day long, but that's going to be boring, right? conventional finance, the most powerful players are bankers, payment firms and asset managers. But crypto? It's a very different world with very different overlords. Bitcoin, the best money we've ever had. I'm getting into crypto with FTX. You in? So in this video, we're going to talk about how you can start making $100 per day using Coinbase. We're going to be using the Binance app to stake coins on Binance. Instead, power is concentrated in the hands of exchange owners, the platforms where people can buy and sell anything from Bitcoin to Mongoose coin. And while there are thousands of exchanges, at least as of right now, there are four you have to focus on. Binance, FTX, BitMEX and Coinbase. Our finance correspondent, Mathieu Favas, has been getting to know the personalities behind the platforms. Mathieu, welcome. Hi, Rachana. Now, you've written this absolutely fascinating story for our Christmas issue, looking at the the four men who run these exchanges. What drew you to the story? Well, you know, the, the world of crypto is full of myth and heroes. And, and arguably, you know, some of the, the biggest myths and heroes are around the people who founded the biggest exchanges, the biggest businesses. And we know quite a lot about their businesses. We know some of the details around how they were created, but we know very little about who they are, you know, what motivates them, their aspirations, their ambitions. Uh, so I was really interested to, to find out more, to look under the hoodie of, of these people, so to speak. Your story focuses on these four kings of crypto. Who are they? So the four kings are Shengpeng Zhao, who goes by CZ. 
he runs Binance, the, the largest exchange. Then you have Sam Bankman-Fried, who's known as SBF in the trade. Uh, he runs the two-year-old challenger FTX. He's only 29-year-old himself. Then you have the co-founder of BitMEX, Arthur Hayes, who pioneered some of the riskiest and most popular products in crypto. And the, the last one on our list is Brian Armstrong, the CEO of Coinbase, uh, the only exchange that is listed and regulated in America, and America's biggest exchange. Now, why did you focus on these four exchanges? Well, when we say crypto, uh, it's really a catch-all word for a lot of different things. So, you know, cryptocurrencies, of course, the, the, the most famous crypto assets. But also you have uh, tokens that are not being used or, or meant to be used as currencies. You've got non-fungible tokens and a whole host of decentralized financial apps. Uh, so it's a big world. But if you look at it, a lot of it comes down to, to speculation, to trying to bet on the prices of some of these assets, say Bitcoin, for example, or Ethereum. The volume of derivatives that are being traded on exchanges. Derivatives are essentially bets on the future prices of uh, cryptocurrencies. It's a bit like if you were going to the, the horse races, you know, and you bet on a horse. You don't actually buy the horse, you bet on who's finishing the race first. And at the moment, the volume of trading of those derivatives far, far exceeds that of actual cryptocurrencies transactions. And the cryptocurrencies and the derivative contracts are all traded on exchanges, which makes the exchange bosses the kings of this world, uh, even if crypto is theoretically about getting rid of middlemen. It's not often that we, that we delve into the personalities behind financial firms, but why is it in this case that the personalities are so important? Well, these personalities exert huge personal power over their, their brands. You know, they, they have cult followings, they have created these big businesses, but also they've grown really rich doing so. So they've amassed multi-billion dollar fortunes, all of them, and massive influence over the course that the crypto world is taking. Quite a few of them actually write essays on the future of finance. Uh, and there does seem to be a bit of a formula as to how you become what they have become. But they do contrast also in important ways, which in themselves tell you quite a bit about what the future of crypto could look like and which of these firms could end up dominating it. So let's find out a little bit more about what it takes to be one of the most powerful people in crypto. Who are we going to meet first? So the hottest firm in crypto right now is indisputably FTX, uh, who's run by the 29-year-old whisket, Sam Beckmatt-Fried. Uh, but everyone in the know calls him SBF. It's 7.30 right now, and, and you know it certainly isn't like the office is emptying out or anything. And in fact, some people are just getting in. A few weeks back, I got a virtual tour of their Hong Kong office, uh, and you have to picture it like it's high finance meeting teen cows with a relentless work ethic. So there's pretty big variance in how many and which hours people work. There are still people here on weekends. I'm usually here. And so, you know, all over the place, but on average, people do work reasonably hard. Like most trading floors, uh, you know, you can see desks with six screens each. Uh, you've got neon lit keyboards, uh, but down on them, you know, you've got guitars, badminton shuttles, booze, takeaway boxes. It's, it's, it's a bit chaotic. And then you've got big posters of SBF uh, on the wall as the king of clubs or Uncle Sam leading troops in the trenches. So I asked SBF, you know, when it was exactly that he knew that this was the army he wanted to lead. It was really when, when crypto was kind of going crazy in late 2017, enough so that sort of everyone was talking about crypto then. It was hard not to be. But when others were getting swept up in that excitement, the way he talks about it sounds uh, a bit more calculated. I sort of saw it from the outside as an area that just based on the things that you could see that were going on was pretty likely to have a lot of the properties of a field 
where there were really good trades to do. This was essentially an opportunity to do good business. It really quickly became clear that the exchanges were a completely central and important part of the industry. And it also quickly became clear that they were not really up to task. FTX is only two years old, but it's stealing market share from its more established rivals and no consistently ranks in the top four. I still didn't know when, when I started up FTX if it was going to work. And in particular, I didn't know if we were going to figure out how to get customers and how to, how to you know, build out a brand. But I felt pretty good about our ability to build a good product. In October, FTX was valued at $25 billion, up more than a quarter in just a few months, and just a bit more than SBF's personal estimated net worth. But for all his billions, he lives remarkably simply. He shares a flat with friends from a previous job, uh, but he doesn't have a lot of time to spend there. Yeah, my hours are completely insane. You know, I, I think my last call is at 5 a.m. tonight or something like that. People who work with SBF refer to him as a human hurricane, capable of handling extraordinary details while juggling many things. I tend to be pretty hands-on, not always as hands-on as I'd ideally like to be. As the business grows, it gets harder to keep up with everything, but I try my best to, to really dig in and get my hands dirty. And from our conversation, it seems like work-life balance doesn't really exist when you run a crypto empire. I'll sleep odd hours. I'll just sort of like, you know, rest whenever seems appropriate and whenever I, I have a gap in my schedule. You know, I tend to work, you know, the majority of the time. You know, I wouldn't say exactly always, but I, I don't really take days off exactly and fairly sort of erratic hours. Do you still consider there is a, you know, a daytime and a nighttime? Uh, is, is your day structured in that way? So yes, but but less strongly. In fact, when, when I was in quarantine for a couple of weeks because of, of travel, I decided not to uh, actually not draw my blinds to keep them closed the whole time. Uh, partially, I just didn't want to FOMO about sort of the outside world. Um, and, and so, you know, for that whole time, like there was no effective notion of daytime or nighttime for me. You know, it was entirely just the time when these colleagues are up versus the time when these other colleagues are up. Yeah. I suppose meals, meals are the same, right? Uh, breakfast or dinner, that doesn't really yep. mean anything. It's not a huge difference other than, you know, which, uh, which restaurants are open for delivery when. Well, it sounds like running an exchange is a 24-hour-a-day operation. It's something I, I certainly can never do. So FTX came on the scene only two years ago. Who are the major players that SBF is challenging? Well, the biggest crypto exchange of all is Binance, run by Champagne Zhao, otherwise known as CZ. He's a very interesting, uh, secretive kind of guy. Uh, he has a you know, very different life to SBF, uh, Canadian Chinese, the son of, uh, of a professor who fled the, the Cultural Revolution in China. Uh, and he told me about it and, and his dream of achieving financial freedom as a second generation immigrant. I think that probably helped a lot to the Binance story, to be honest. I was born in China, immigrated to Canada, working in Japan, working in New York, working in Shanghai, Singapore, Hong Kong. Every time I lived in a different country, when I had to do currency conversions, it would cost me like, you know, three, five percent. So I think through those experiences, uh, it allowed myself to understand that currencies are very local. At 44, is the oldest of the four but it's still too young to have ridden the dot-com bubble of the 90s. He wasn't going to let this opportunity pass by. I think when I come across Bitcoin, that was 2013, that was eight years ago, I was like 35. I have like, you know, 
10, 15 years of experience in financial space, in the IT space. Um, I did start a couple of startups. And when I come across Bitcoin, I was like, this is the future. This, this is absolutely the future. This is a new technology. This is going to change the world. What internet did to information, blockchain, Bitcoin is going to do to finance. And I'm 35, not too old, not too young. I can catch this uh, and I want to jump in. So I actually left my job without having a job offer. I just want to be in the space and figure out what I can do. That conviction has only increased. I'm more convinced than, than ever. So if eight years ago uh, I was convinced, today I'm 100x more convinced. The user numbers keep growing. The number of applications keep growing. Entrepreneurs can raise money in crypto all around the world. So the thing I judge about the industry is not so much the coin price, is the number of users. The number of users are continually increasing. Like SBF, it doesn't flash this cash. Uh, no, I don't own a bike. I don't own a car. I do have a scooter. Uh, <laughs> it's a um, uh, $200 thing. Uh, so maybe $150 US dollar scooter. That's a friend of mine gave it to me for like a second hand. You know, I, I go to like coffee shops around me, etc. So it's very handy in Singapore. He lives in a rented flat. So I have my bed and my desk in one room. <laughs> In fact, his wealth is all held in cryptocurrencies with just a few thousand dollars in cash to pay for near-term expenses. So I don't spend on like, you know, luxury cars, luxury, uh, you know, stuff like that. I'm a gadget guy. So I buy a lot of gadgets. I buy like, you know, every, every new cell phone that's, that's out, cameras, drones, not super cheap, not super expensive, you know, a couple hundred dollars, a couple thousand dollars here and there. Um, but I'm not into like super expensive stuff. Yeah. Um, but I do have like five or six phones sitting on my desk. It's hard enough to keep track of one phone. Keeping track of where all your six phones are is quite the feat. <laughs> but um, has Binance always been the dominant exchange? What came before it? Sure. So, so SBF right now is biting at the heels of CZ. But CZ you know, himself, actually three years ago, only three years ago, dethroned Arthur Hayes, the boss of BitMEX, um, and Ace is the only one of the four I didn't get to speak to in person, uh, regrettably. is uh, is been charged in America with anti-money laundering failings uh, and is awaiting trial. So he declined to take part and he denies wrongdoing. But uh, I did get to talk to uh, quite a few people who know him, who work closely with them, or friends of them. And he's a really interesting character. He's basically quite a bit different from, I suppose, the three others in that his background uh, differs. He is the son of parents who worked in manufacturing uh, as opposed to I suppose, more intellectual professions for, for, for the three others. But like SBF, you know, that did not prevent him from cutting his teeth on Wall Street. Uh, he started as an investment banker, which, you know, is somewhat ironic for someone who know is trying to challenge traditional finance. BitMEX itself, it is not the oldest of uh, the four exchanges, as though started quite recently. But the way it became famous was by pioneering the riskiest and, and, and most popular derivatives in crypto. The particular product that BitMEX pioneered is called Perpetual Swap. It's essentially betting on the future price of, uh, of a cryptocurrency via a contract that never expires. Uh, and the reason it was popular is because first, you don't have to buy the cryptocurrency itself, uh, which in some ways it's easier. But also the exchange offered 100x leverage. You could put uh, $10,000 in your uh, account uh, and you could make a place a $1 million bet uh, on the exchange. So that, of course, got a lot of people very excited. Now, because these products are really risky, they're not actually available or supposed to be available to American investors, for example. And that 
plus, I guess, Ace lifestyle, which we will talk about in a minute, means that he has attracted the uh, the wrath of American regulators. But aren't some people pointing to other reasons why he might have attracted particular attention from regulators? Well, his supporters argue that you know this sort of attention is is been getting is basically the price for being the first mover at a time when there weren't really rules governing crypto. Uh, so basically, he did not break them because they were not there. Some even argue that the financial establishment felt threatened by him because he's a successful black man who doesn't mean his words. But definitely, he has this this, this sort of uh, high-octane James Bond lifestyle. He's charming, he's muscular, uh, he's good on TV, he's a self-styled visionary. He's known to have arrived to conferences in an original Lamborghini. He kitted up the office of BitMEX in Hong Kong with a giant aquarium with live sharks in it. Uh, so he's definitely a very colourful character. So we've got Arthur Hayes at BitMEX, CZ, who runs the dominant Binance, and the young pretender, Sam Bankman-Fried, or SBF, at FTX. Let's talk about the fourth of these giants, Coinbase, run by Brian Armstrong. Coinbase is probably the one that most people might have heard of because it went public on the Nasdaq back in April. Yes, yeah, so Coinbase is the only one of the four that is listed and regulated in the US. Uh, the others are all incorporated and headquartered abroad. Uh, FTX in the Bahamas, Binance in the Cayman Islands, BitMEX in the Seychelles. So not only abroad, but actually pretty far from the US. And in terms of character and style, Brian Armstrong is about as far from the showmanship of Ace uh, as you can get. I was basically a huge nerd, you know, to put it <laughs> bluntly. I was like, I was interested in reading books. I was interested in playing with computers. I didn't have that many friends. I had like, I had like maybe two close friends. I didn't feel confident speaking up or anything like that. You know, in some ways, I'm, I'm really the same person. I kind of like being an introvert. I guess the big thing I would say is that for many years as a younger person, I had this kind of self-doubt. I was like, well, I don't think I could ever be the CEO of a company because in my mind, that's not what CEOs were like. They were like these generals who were barking orders to everybody, super extroverted and super confident. And some CEOs are that. But what I didn't realize at the time was that there's many different kinds of CEOs. You can basically be any kind of CEO you want. Uh, and in fact, some of the best ones are introverts. It took me a long time to kind of become comfortable with that. Like CZ, Armstrong was converted to crypto by the idea of borderless, frictionless finance. I had worked at Airbnb as an early engineer, and they were trying to move money to 190 countries around the world to collect payments from people and pay out hosts and things like that. And I just got a, kind of had a front row seat to see how inefficient the global payment systems were. And so I had this sort of visceral sense when I first read the Bitcoin white paper that this could be a better mechanism. Wow, this could be something as impactful as the internet, a new global decentralized protocol for moving value around instead of moving information around. And I just basically couldn't stop thinking about it for months and months. And it captured my attention in a really powerful way. I started playing around with, with Bitcoin. My initial thought was, okay, this protocol is really powerful. It's really interesting, but it's way too difficult to use for the average person. So how, I wasn't really even thinking of it as like an exchange or a payment system or a wallet. I was more just thinking like, how can we make this much more easy to use? And then also, how do we make it trusted? And that issue of trust is, is crucial. It's what Armstrong believes will give Conbase an edge. And it's quite different from you know, the sort of iconoclastic attitude uh, of many of his peers. I was going to these Bitcoin meetups with some of the early crypto people. Their general view was kind of like a crypto anarchy or something like that. And they were like, well, 
F the banks and F the government and everything. We're just going to go build our own thing. My view, having worked at Airbnb and started a business previously and all these things, I was like, that's never going to work. Coinbase took a very different approach. You know, I was putting on a suit and going to meet with the local regulators in California and then federally and bank partners. You know, we wanted to make it easy to get people to get fiat money into crypto and into Coinbase as well. That approach has shaped Coinbase's development, but there's no doubt it has also cost them. I can tell you it was enormously, you know, it was painful at times for us to watch what competitors were doing and say, why do they have another hundred assets? They listed another hundred assets on their platform or margin trading at like 30x leverage or like these things that we said, you know, we don't think that that's legal to launch in the US. But Armstrong says he's playing the long game. I think in terms of decades about how this industry is going to be evolved and how people are going to adopt this technology, because I knew that if we didn't actually go reach out to regulators and educate them about this and eventually get it to be licensed and and regulated, that it would never go mainstream. And it's that final bit that's really crucial to the next chapter of crypto. Uh, You know, regulation is coming over the horizon, uh, but the form it takes and how these four guys and the companies react to it is going to determine the next phase of the crypto universe and how it shapes the future of finance. And that future is what we're going to talk about next. But before we do, if you're enjoying this programme, it's been made to accompany just one of the many extraordinary essays in the holiday double issue of The Economist. If you're looking for a Christmas present for that one person who's impossible to buy for, or just some escapist holiday reading of your own, this show is just a preview. In our pages, you'll find out how to stop a war on Mars and why human beings since the dawn of civilization have longed to know what it's like to be a bird. To read or listen to all that and more, go to economist.com slash podcast offer, and you can also find that link in the show notes. As we publish today, we're also waiting to hear what the Federal Reserve decides about the pace of tapering of its asset purchases, with implications for how quickly interest rates might rise in America. While it's too late for us, our daily current affairs show, The Intelligence, will have all the details and analysis first thing tomorrow. Make sure you listen. 
what he thinks about regulation, what the exchange is planning. Uh, and people, you know, people who observe crypto from the outside say there's, there's quite a lot of uh, gray around what Binance has been doing to, to get to, to be the biggest. And because they are the biggest, arguably, you know, the, the regulation question is the most pressing for Binance. Unfortunately, we are by far the largest player in the crypto space. So when the regulators get involved, they look at Binance first. So earlier this year, especially around the summer, actually, uh, Binance has received warnings from a number of countries, you know, from Britain to Japan to Germany and Hong Kong as well, actually, Italy, that some of the activities or services that it was selling to citizens in these countries were, were not being licensed or not legal. Uh, in some instances, actually been banned from selling or actually having operations in those countries. So there was some real action happening on the ground. But it's actually not that bad because... In that process, we help to shape the regulatory process in the space. So we are the ones shaping it. The second thing most people don't think about is um, today in the cryptocurrency field, uh, there's a very long tail. Today, Binance have about 70% of the uh, global trading volume. Uh, we're the first. The second place is Coinbase at 8%. But in the point something percent, there's thousands of exchanges there. When regulators start to regulate this field, the regulatory compliance costs are high. They're in the tens or hundreds of millions of dollars because you got to hire lawyers, improve your processes. Most of the smaller players would not be able to afford that cost. So for us, we do get a lot of attention now, but it actually helps us to eliminate thousands of competition. So it's not all negative. Mathieu, that's an interesting point. Is he right to be so confident about the impact of regulation? Well, I suppose it may be right that smaller exchanges will struggle to abide by, you know, fresh regulations, the cost will rise and some of them might disappear and they might, you know, um, sort of hoover up uh, some market share through that. But, but equally, you know, stricter regulation is likely to dent their business as well. The volume of it, uh, the profit, profitability of it, quite likely. Uh, and one example of that is what we saw uh, earlier this year when Binance and FTX, uh, both of them pretty much at the same time, uh, started to put a cap on the amount of leverage that they offered to, to investors. So instead of offering more than 100x leverage, they put a cap at around 20x. So you can see you know, how perhaps in the future, fresh rules might limit the amount of business that uh, these exchanges are doing, perhaps favoring the, the, the more strictly compliant exchanges. It's been notable this year that China's really been the toughest on crypto. Has that had a concrete impact on these four companies? So you, you couldn't say that they've been uh, seeing a big dip in volumes, I think. Uh, it's, you know, through the year, the volumes have continued to grow. They've done tremendous business. But, but you know, one concrete impact, for example, for FTX, they used to be based in Hong Kong, headquartered in Hong Kong, uh, and they've just moved their headquarters to the Bahamas. It doesn't mean they're moving many people there. They still have, you know, the flagship office is still in Hong Kong. Uh, but clearly, SBF uh, was worried that Hong Kong, you know, being drawn closer to China politically, that China cracking down against crypto might at some point means that Hong Kong will as well. It's always a worry. And I think that it's hard to know what the future is going to be. You know, I know that the SFC has signaled that over the next year, they're going to be looking to introduce a, a new regulatory framework in Hong Kong. They haven't sort of given the details of that yet. And I do think that, you know, changes in the regulatory environment, along with changes in quarantine measures, are going to be playing a pretty large role and where we're going to be. From what you're saying, I take it that you're not excluding basically moving to another base or location if that were necessary. 
I mean, I wouldn't be surprised. There, there are a bunch of countries where I wouldn't be shocked if that country ended up being where most of our employees were a couple of years from now. And if China's the toughest, how does that compare with how other countries are thinking about regulating crypto? Well, you can think of regulation uh, of crypto around the world in terms of perhaps countries falling into three different buckets. Uh, you know, we've spoken about China, uh, which is in the extreme position of, of basically banning crypto. Uh, India is not super far off in, in that they're considering a ban. Uh, at the other end, you have essentially small nations uh, that have long been tax havens, say the Bahamas, the Seychelles, um, or countries that are embracing crypto, but mostly for you know to, to gain celebrity, like um, El Salvador. Uh, this category is the friendliest towards crypto. Uh, and in the middle, and this is what really matters, in the middle you have the US, America, rich Asian nations like Japan, Korea, and this is where the game is being played. This is what people are, are looking at. Because, you know, just in the last quarter, you've seen a boom in lobbying by crypto firms in uh, Washington, D.C., in Brussels, uh, whereby they are trying to influence the rules. And, and this this was actually pretty clear when I spoke to Brian Armstrong, when he, he basically argued that he was in a good position to educate, uh, to educate regulators. Increasingly, I'm spending my time just engaging with policymakers in the U.S. and around the world and trying to basically be an educational resource to them and advise them on how these countries can capture the opportunity in front of them. The reason why there is so much leeway, so much to discuss, so much to, to lobby about is because it's a very complex universe. Uh, it's not just the currencies. We don't even know if there are currencies, actually. It all starts with definitions. There's very little agreement to begin with on what uh, is Bitcoin, for example. Is it a currency? Is it something else? And then you've, you have thousands of other crypto assets. So crypto is becoming many, many different things, right? It's becoming an asset class for investment. For instance, we're regulated as a money transmitter that we store people's funds and, and that kind of thing. There's also crypto uh, securities, crypto security tokens. One of the challenges right now is that it's, it's actually quite unclear which crypto assets are a security and which are not. Then there's also stable coins, right? There's NFTs, artwork, and DeFi. How do you regulate a smart contract, right? In many cases, people don't even know who created it. There's this Cambrian explosion of, of innovation happening, and it's not always clear what regulatory framework should apply. So with that in mind, Mathieu, what's the end game for these four men? How do they hope crypto will change the world or revolutionize finance? Well, if you listen to them, there is a real sense of mission, I think, that you can get uh, for, for, for most of them. It is that crypto will indeed change the world. Here is CZ. It's no longer about money. It's about doing something that's meaningful. I mean, I can retire and drink martinis on the beach and go play golf all day long, but that's going to be boring, right? In human history, anytime we're able to increase the freedom of something, our civilization advances. The freedom of information, freedom of data, the internet, freedom of speech, freedom of education, freedom of press, freedom from slavery. Our views today, our money is not that free. Uh, we can help to increase that with cryptocurrencies without sacrificing compliance, security, and ease of use. I think the mission cannot be as low as just making money. Uh, it shouldn't be as high as saving the world. Uh, so it should be somewhere in between. So for us, it's contributing to increasing the freedom of money in the world. What does this mean in practice then? Do they want to completely replace fiat money, government-issued currencies? No, not really. I suppose perhaps at the beginning they were, but uh, you know, when I spoke to them, my feeling was that they were essentially wanting to affirm more choice, freeing up money by offering a wider array of possibilities. 
So I'm not against any fiat currencies. I don't, we don't need to destroy fiat currencies. Fiat currencies can be used for local transactions. It's very convenient. Uh, but cryptocurrencies serve many other features that fiat currencies could not serve well today. Two years ago, when somebody provides a service to me, let's say I buy something from somebody or if I order something from somebody, they say they only accept fiat. I will pay them fiat. I will feel rude to ask them, do you, do you want, are you willing to accept crypto? Today, when I, when I buy a bottle of wine, um, from like say a wine seller comes to me and says, you want to buy you know, a few bottles of wine. I tell them, I will only buy from you if you accept crypto. The response from the guy is almost immediate. I will accept crypto. So today is not rude to ask somebody to accept crypto, at least in my circles. The response is always yes. I've never had any rejections. I think within five to 10 years, we will reach 80% adoption for crypto. So, and that means 80% of the population will readily accept cryptocurrencies as any form of value transfer, payments, etc. But at the moment, we're still pretty far off having cryptocurrencies as an option for most people to use in their everyday lives. You mentioned that the vast majority of the trade on these exchanges is financial products like derivatives. Do you think that will change? And will that in turn impact the power or profitability of these firms? Well, there is a form of contradiction in the arguments they make attention, at least. Um, the way they are promoting cryptocurrencies is mostly to encourage people to speculate, which makes it you know, more volatile and, and less useful. You know, To be able to pay with cryptocurrencies, you need to be able to count on a price. And as we've seen in recent months, it remains highly volatile, despite the growth in it, the size of the market, in the number of investors that are getting into it. So when you think about these four men and their companies, the gambles that they're making, do you think they can keep riding the wave? I think there is a lot of uncertainty, and I guess on several fronts. The first one is, is really regulation. Uh, you know, in the short to medium term, things are going to change. And as we discussed before, even relatively small tweaks might actually make some of their business models less profitable. Uh, secondly, it's, you know, who is going to ride the waves? We've seen this sort of uh, leading foursome change in, in just a few years. And especially in areas which are less regulated, so offshore exchanges, uh, so not Coinbase, but the three others, uh, it seems that, you know, a faster, smarter, uh, more agile player emerges every couple of years. And I suppose the third and last question we can ask is how long these founders will will keep on being at the hands of these companies. They seem highly motivated now, but they're already pretty rich. And you can ask, you know, perhaps what do they want to do next? They're already starting to act like the, you know, an older generation of tech founders uh, looking for moonshot projects, uh, humanitarian causes to spend their billions on. It's not given that they will want to to continue to work at this sort of frenetic lifestyle, not in the short term. You know, they, they seem highly motivated. They have lots of energy. And they've, they've proved really capable of, of riding pretty volatile markets. You know, this year we've seen the price of Bitcoin rise and fall really fast. We've seen the regulators wake up. We've seen challenges come online. And despite that, they're still at the top, still managing those businesses very well. So there are forces to be reckoned with. But, you know, to continue to succeed, they will need more than skill and discipline, quite likely. They will need persistent luck, which uh, I suppose is what you need when you're playing poker. Mathieu Favas, thank you very much. You're welcome, Regina. Our thanks to Sam Bankman-Fried, Changpeng Zhao, Brian Armstrong and everyone who spoke to Mathieu in his reporting. And thank you for listening to Money Talks. We'll be back next week for our final show of the year. I'll be giving up the chair and being interrogated instead in our annual festive jamboree. Don't miss it. 
In the meantime, if you've enjoyed this year, please do take a moment to rate us or even better, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It only takes a minute and it's the best gift you could give us. The producer is Amika Shortino Nolan, with additional production help from William Warren, an executive produced by Kim Gittelson. Nico Ralfast is our sound engineer. The editor is Sandra Schmorelli. I'm Rachna Scharnbog, and in London, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.